This podcast contains explicit language and mature content. This episode includes some discussion of sexual violence. It might not be appropriate for all listeners. I didn't care what they thought. I knew he was innocent. Mother knows things like this. The only thing he was guilty of was being gay. From Boston, Massachusetts, you're listening to Mass Exoneration. These are the stories of people who were convicted of crimes, crimes they never committed, and what happened next for them and for the people they had to leave behind. I'm Brian Pilchik. This is Episode 5, Bernie. Hello. Hi, is this Bertha? Yes, it is. Hi, this is Brian Pilcher. This is Bertha Shaw. She's a mother to four children. One of them was Bernard Barron. Growing up, she called him Bernie. Bernie was an average kid. He didn't like sports. He tried baseball. He used to be afraid of the ball. Um, he was always a, a very kind gentle. He had a gentleness about him. And uh, he, <laughs> he was full of energy. They say hyper, but he was full of energy. Always go, go, go. Um, he liked music, always as a kid. He liked books. But there was something about Bernie that made him different. Bernie was very particular as a kid. He always liked to look just so. And this is from the time he was young. His brother wore jeans. He wore white jeans. With his shirt tucked in. And his best sneakers. And I said, they're going to get dirty. He said, no, they won't. And I said, okay. And uh, so when he'd go down the slide, he'd stop, brush off his pants, brush off his sneakers, and continue on. So he was very particular. You know, I think he always felt different. And I do believe that a part of him knew he was gay. But there was a part of him yet that he wasn't sure. When he was 14 years old, he told his mom. Finally, when he told me he was gay, I said to him, I'll never forget it. I said, you can't be. And he started to cry and he said, I am now. And I said, you can't be. And someone said to me, you love him and he left because he's gay. I said, look what they're doing to gay people. I said, they're beating them and, and everything else. I don't, I don't want him to be gay. He can't be gay. Because I had that fear in the 80s, what they were doing to them. And I was afraid that would happen to him. You're going to hear all about Bernie. You'll even hear from him, through the letters he left behind. But there's a reason you're not hearing Bernie's voice right now. His mom was right to be afraid. Because in the end, Bernard Barron didn't survive what was about to happen to him. It was the 1980s in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. Coming out as gay was hard. 
the kind of thing that can throw your life off track. He knew he was gay from from before, you know, before any of us met him. <laughs> and he um, was intent upon living that life openly and freely. This is Bernie's lawyer. Oh, I'm John Swamley. I, I have a law firm downtown in Boston that uh, does criminal defense, and and uh, and I was young and naive when I first got involved in this case. Sometimes you'll hear John call Bernie by his first initial, B. That's what a lot of his friends called him. Though not everyone saw him as a friend. This was the 80s. This was not a, this was a, I mean, there were people who were gay and you knew who they were, but that, there was certainly no acceptance. The reason Bernie dropped out of school was because he couldn't take the pressure of the team and all that. And he decided, you know what? I'm going to get out of school, get me a job, and build myself a life. In ninth grade, he finished ninth grade. And, uh, and he got a job as a, um, as a cedar worker, if I'm not mistaken, working in a daycare. And he excelled at it. He was fabulous. The kids, he, he, I mean, he was just, he was friendly and, and warm. When he would speak to kids, he would get down on his knees to be level with them. And I have not met a kid that didn't feel comfortable with him because of the way he was. He, he could relate to a two-year-old right up to 82, and every one of them would feel his comfort because I believe he had a gift that made you feel comfortable. But the parents of the kids at the daycare center, they saw it differently. Um, one of the families decided that uh, they didn't want a homo taking care of their kid. And they uh, complained about it to the, uh, the staff at ECDC, the Early Childhood Development Center. That's what I, that, uh, the daycare center was called. And uh, they complained about it. And we have minutes from the, the meetings that they talked about the Bernie problem. It wasn't the, the problem with the parents that have a problem with a homosexual that's working in our daycare. It was the Bernie problem. And nothing was done, actually, to the credit of the, um, of the daycare at the time. Um, they didn't fire him. And uh, after about a month of them not doing anything, that family decided to take some um, action on their own. The parents went to the police. They ultimately uh, leveled sex allegations against um, B. Uh, they said that their son uh, had claimed he, uh, he had had his penis squeezed to the point where blood came out of it. An allegation that doesn't make a lot of sense. They were saying Bernie molested their child. The gay man at the daycare center molested their three-year-old child. This was part of the daycare panic. Uh, cases. This was the first one, in fact. Daycare panic cases. These were sweeping the nation in the 80s and 90s. That's not to say that every accusation of sexual abuse was false. But this wave of cases during this period of American history, many of them couldn't be substantiated. Looking back, the New York Times calls it a fever, a hysteria, a panic. Parents accusing childcare workers of touching their children, raping them. Sometimes they said there were even satanic rituals. There's a whole dynamic to a daycare panic case, and, and one of the weird ones is this neighbor neighborhood competition of wanting to be uh, involved in what 
the badness that's happened or this contagion of, of sex abuse that's happened in, in this small town. And in a small town, the contagion travels fast. Other parents heard about what Bernie was accused of. They interrogated their own children. They talked to other parents. It was uh, ultimately reported to the wife of the chief of police who had a friend who had um, another child there. And the police came looking for Bernie. She called the police station because they were looking for him. So he called the police station because he said to his sister, I, I wonder what they want me for. She said, I don't know. They didn't say. So he called the police station. And uh, he went down there. They questioned him. And, you know, we didn't think a whole lot about it. But then they arrested him. Bernie was held. The court set bail. And we weren't a family with money. I didn't own my own house or anything. So I uh, had a car. I got a bondsman. I got him out. Two days later, they rearrested him with more charges, and I couldn't get him out. More parents were coming forward. There were more charges. Bernie couldn't afford bail, so he had to stay in jail while the prosecution put together a case against him. Bernie's mom went to visit him. And he was scared, but said, don't worry, Mom, it's, it's going to be okay. I didn't do anything, so I'm okay. Bernie told his first lawyer the same thing. I didn't do anything. The lawyer wasn't so sure. The attorney made me go back and talk to him again. Well, I was going anyway. I want you to go in and talk to Bernie and ask him if he did this, you can get him out. I said, do you want me to say that to him? And he said, yes. And I remember, I said this I said, you know, Bernie, if you did things, we can get you out. And Bernie looked right into my eyes and said, Mom, I never would hurt a child. In my heart, I knew the answer even before he said it. I said to him, I'm so sorry, Bernie, but the attorney wanted me to ask. And we both just cried. The prosecutor charged Bernie with molesting six children at the daycare center. They offered Bernie a deal. Less time in prison if he would admit to doing it. And they said they would give him five years if he pleaded guilty. And, and uh, the DA told him, if you don't, I'll make sure you get life. And when that happened, I felt like I couldn't breathe. I thought, oh my God, what's going on? And that's when I knew that things were really going bad. And I thought, I said, I said, uh, I want you to take the plea bargain for any because I'm scared. He said to me, Mom, are you there? I said, yes, I'm here because I was trying to compose myself. And he says, Mom, I don't want to serve one day for something I should not do. You always told us to stand up for yourself if you're right. That is right. We will fight, I said. Every year, I hated myself for helping him make a decision that would take away his life. 
I probably could have convinced them. But we didn't know what was in store for him. They went to trial. A jury would decide whether or not Bernie did it. A small-town jury. And there was a man who knew what would play well to that crowd at that time. First assistant district attorney, Daniel Ford. Daniel Ford, the prosecutor. He needed to convince the jury that Bernie molested children. There wasn't physical evidence, but he had something else up his sleeve. Uh, lots of innuendo and lots of horrible uh, things that were that were said that were you know dog whistle kind of things to to turn a small town jury into uh, uh, convicting uh, be with no real evidence of any kind. Dog whistles, ways of saying without actually saying he's gay. He would do this. Ford told the jury that Bernie was like a chocoholic in a candy store. That's what it would mean to be a gay man surrounded by children. And it wasn't just the innuendo. Ford called witnesses, the children. They had been interviewed by the police. They came into court and testified at trial. Young children, three and four years old, with ribbons in their hair. You sit in that courtroom and you listen to all this stuff they're saying. And who are they talking about? That isn't your son they're talking about. I want to scream. I just want to say, can't you see? Stop looking at the ribbons in the hair and the curly dresses and listen to what they're saying. It doesn't make sense. It didn't make sense because it wasn't true. Bernie didn't know it at the time, but the prosecution had been coaching the children. One of the more egregious ones, and and it's one that they didn't actually end up using, um, was of a kid who pitched a fit in the middle of the tape recording saying, you promised me a prize. Where's my prize? I want it now. Ford didn't end up calling that witness, but he called others and used similar tricks to get them talking. Even during the trial in one of the cases, when one of the kids couldn't make an ID or or testify properly, uh, he, Dan Ford, took this child out in the hall and promised them a hamburger if they would just get back out there and testify the way they were supposed to. The children did. They accused Bernie of taking off his pants, touching their private parts, threatening to kill their mothers if they ever told. But the things they were saying were not not true. And the nightmare was just getting worse. And Bernie looked so scared sitting in there. And yet, with his lips, he motioned, I love you, to me. I did it back to him. And during the trial, the attorney says, you're not looking well, are you okay? I said, you don't worry about me, you worry about my son. You need to do more. By the end, six children testified against Bernie. 
he faced five counts of rape and five counts of indecent assault and battery. We were on trial for five days. And the jury went in for three hours and convicted him. Bernie was sentenced to life in prison. This I was about five, five and a half, when he, you know, just was gone one day. And until I was probably old enough to understand, you know, they basically just kept telling me he went away. This is Bernie's niece, Crystal. I'm Crystal Squires, and Bernard Barron was my uncle. We grew up in a family that didn't have much. And so, you know, like as families do, you pull your resources when times get tough. So when my mom was young, single mother, Bernie moved in with us when I was probably like two and lived with us up, right up until actually he got taken away. So, you know, in the beginning it was, you know, he was, he was always the one that put me on the school bus, got up with me in the morning and, you know, was basically there for me. I remember one time I tried running away and he talked me back into the house with onion rings, which we used to always laugh about years later. You know, how he ever did, I don't know, because I hate onion rings. <laughs> I guess I did it back then. When Bernie first went to prison, the family didn't explain to Crystal what was happening. It wasn't like Bernie went on a trip and he was coming back because he's gone on trips and he's come back. She remembers her first visits to prison. They didn't really start taking me to the prison until I think I was like seven. You know, as a kid, you think it's like a castle because the only other time you've seen things with high you know, stone walls and stuff is like fairy tales and stuff, you know? So you're like, oh, why does Bernie live in such a big castle? And I honestly vaguely remember some of what they told me. I mean, obviously, as you get older, you like realize it's all lies because he can never leave. That was always the thing. But Crystal's family couldn't keep it from her forever. I think I was about eight, and there was an old article in a paper at a neighbor's house that the father did woodworking in the basement, and he had spread it all over the table. And... We were down there playing with the neighbor's kids, and I said, oh, hey, that's my Uncle Bernie. And I remember we weren't allowed to play with those kids ever again after that incident. When, you know, stuff was hit first hitting about Bernie, he'd got arrested, and of course everyone believed what they read in the media. And so I just remember that night like a rock being thrown through my grandmother's window with the word faggot written on it. And, you know, that's even, I think, you know, I was about six and a half, seven years old. It wasn't anything we ever talked about. It wasn't, you know, back then everyone was just so scared because, you know, obviously people were thinking, you know, my grandmother raised a child molester. And that's how small town politics work. But when Crystal heard what he was accused of, she didn't believe it. None of my family ever believed he was guilty. So I was never told growing up that, you know, he was guilty or he did it. We were just, you know, we knew he was innocent. My grandmother always believed he was innocent, and that was the end of the story. I didn't care what they thought. I knew he was innocent. Mother knows things like this. The only thing he was guilty of was being gay. Crystal started to visit the prison with her grandmother, Bertha. 
most of my friends growing up never knew that, you know, I went to prison every Sunday with my grandmother. Well, I visited as often as I could. You know, for us to go visit Bernie would be a three-hour drive. So we were there for as long as we could be there before we drove home. I tried to never miss his birthday. One time I actually got to bring Bernie a birthday cake. One time it was Bernie's birthday, and they brought a cake. And that was in O'Callaghan before they stopped it. My youngest son was excited, and we were bringing Bernie a birthday cake, decorated and everything. I made them, and we got there. And, of course, you have to hand it over to the guards. And so they went, and they came back. And they uh, brought the cake, and it was all cut. And, you know, they would always cut things up to make sure people didn't hide knives or drugs in it. And so when they brought it back to the table, the younger one says, he burst out crying. He said, look what they did to your birthday cake burn, gone burn. And uh, I just got such a lump in my throat, I couldn't even talk. And he started crying and throwing a fit because he was mad that they cut up the cake. And Bernie, Bernie swallowed hard. He leaned over to the to his brother and said, you know what? He said, those, those guys just wanted to take mom's frosting so they were licking on knives. Well, don't cry. They just knew grandma's frosting was so good that they had to try it. And then the both of them laughed. I just wanted to show you how he could turn the situation around. It made you feel good. The guards didn't just search the cakes for contraband. They would search the kids, too. So there was a time, I remember all of us kids got strip searched, and it was just one of those things you don't forget because you were in just a cold room, and, you know, these strange people were making you take your clothes off. So, and, you know, you were scared, but your parent was there. Trying, obviously, your parents were there, but it was still, you know, traumatizing, and then they, you know, chalk you through it we're going to see Bernie soon, so don't, you know, try not to, because if you were too upset, they would make you leave. The guards, if the kid was too emotional or out of control, they wouldn't let you go in. You'd have to calm the kid down. Strip searches for children. And sometimes the guards would come up with reasons why the kids shouldn't be allowed inside. And remember one time they didn't want to let me in because I had a button-up, like, shirt, dress shirt, and had a, a tank top underneath. And they said that it was provocative, even though it was buttoned up to my collar, but because there was like a white T-shirt underneath. I said to him, yeah, well, that guy over there, you can see his tank top under his shirt, and he's going in. And then they said, hold on, and they got a female guard come out, and then she said, she's fine, let her in. So I was nervous because I was like, oh, I don't know what they're going to do, but I think I was like 15 at the time that happened. Oh, I was pretty ballsy then, <laughs> but I wanted to see him, you know. Bertha tried to prepare the children for each visit as best she could. So, you know, every time we'd go to prison and as older I got, it would always, my grandmother used to always give me the same speech going in, try not to cry. Because it would always be, you know, because he, we could leave and he couldn't. And I stayed her, Crystal. You have to try really, really hard not to cry. Listen to Grandma. We get to go to the car. We can hug each other. Bernie has no one to hug. 
and it just makes him feel better. We got to try real hard. And so she got to the point where she could do it. We get in the car and we just cry. We made it out the prison doors, but the minute we got in the car, we cried the five hours where we stuck in traffic. We were cried so hard the whole way, and then it got to the point where we were both just so exhausted that we like actually laughed at ourselves that we were crying that much. But we just remember it was just, you know, we knew if we were crying that hard that he was in his cell crying that hard. And I can't imagine what it's like on his side. On Bernie's side, he was up against a lot. You know, even in prison, there's a hierarchy, which people who've never dealt with prison probably don't know. But, you know, so him going into prison, you know, 18 years old, 100 pounds, he had, you know, the worst rap there was, you know, he was a child molesting faggot, basically, is how everyone looked at him. So even in a prison hierarchy, he's the bottom of the barrel. In Walpole, he called me, and he was crying so bad. And he says to me, Mom, I'm not going to make it. I can't. I can't. I can't do this. I'm afraid. He says, I'm so scared. So I got off the phone and I called the prison and I said, if anything happens to my son, you will regret it. I will have the attorney down there. And then I called the attorney and had him call the prison. He said, well, there's not really much you can do. I said, I need you to go. One day, Bertha got a call from another inmate in the prison, someone who wasn't her son. And I almost didn't take the call, and I something inside of me said, accept it. So I did, and he said, I got to talk very quickly. He said, Bernie tried to commit suicide. And he, he's in the infirmary. You know that they don't let you know this. So I went to the prison the next day. And uh, I went in there and uh, I looked at him and he was so bad. And he was trembling. And I looked at the guard and I said, please let me hold my son. And he did. He said, okay. And I held him. We both cried. And then I said to Bernie, you make me a promise from this day before you never do this again. Because I don't know how, but one day you're going to be a free man. The truth has to come out. You promise me right now. So he endured. He got beat real bad, and, you know, he used to say to us, oh, you should have saw the other guy. And when people in prison think you molested children, you don't just get beat up. He told me things that at the time he was telling me, I used to get upset. Like, if I die, I want this, or if this happens to me. Basically said, I know sometimes the stuff I say makes you nervous, but... I didn't know if I was going to survive the next beating or the next rape. He wrote letters to his mom, to Crystal, 
But he didn't tell his mom about being raped. Bernie had lied to my grandmother about that. I had read the letter, so I already knew the truth, but I never told my grandmother. How do you tell your grandmother that? When Bernie tried to kill himself, the prison sent him for an evaluation at the Massachusetts Treatment Center for Sexually Dangerous Persons. It's a medium security facility, a place where sex offenders weren't at the bottom of the barrel. It would be a safer environment, he hoped. At the new facility, Bernie needed a way to survive. He could have tried to hide from the thing that landed him in prison in the first place, his sexual identity. Just try not to stand out. But Bernie took a different approach. NB was just flamboyantly gay, even in prison. He just... It was part of how he survived, too, believe it or not. Yep. And he, he had grew his hair down to his waist. He had beautiful, straight black hair and was, would just flop it around <laughs> and was just... He, he, was, he was a character. Um, you know, they used to have a saying that I guess the guys would say to each other if they would try to invade on each other's space or time. You know, you do your time how you want to do your time. I'm going to do my time how I want to do my time. So there was times where... If Bernie was just feeling like causing a ruckus that day or he was feeling, you know, just excited, he used to put on his music. You know, they were able at one time to have TVs and, you know, boom boxes and stuff like that. So he used to get up on his tier and play his music really loud. And, you know, people would yell, shut that shit off. And, you know, all the inmates would start because in. Mary J. Blige. Yeah, that's what he, that's like helped him get through prison. A lot of her songs, and if you if you know who she is in the beginning, her stuff was just so raw from the heart and sad. A lot of it was sad, but it did help him. He would dance and sing. I used to we used to always joke. So I'd be like, "You cannot sing," and he, "I don't care." And he would sing louder. So he was just that was his personality. Like if he he loved music, I think it was probably his, his escape. You know, that way he could just be himself, and you know he used his gayness to survive, too, because he won a lot of guys over that were homophobics because they saw him as a sister or someone in their family or a woman in his, in his family. So, you know, even after he was, you know, basically being gay, got him where he was, he still never was not true to who he, who he was, even though he knew it was going to make his life hell. And in the end, it helped. He ended up getting one of the most the best job you can actually get in the treatment center. He, he worked in the employee kitchen. He, he, he cooked his way into the hearts and minds of the guards. He made pastries. He made anything and everything they wanted, and, he, and they loved him for it. But he worked his way up to being literally at the top of the food chain in, that, in the institution he ended up in um, finally. And uh, basically, there, there were... He'd won over the guards. He'd won over the, um, the, the treatment staff. It helped that people inside started to believe that Bernie didn't do it. Being um, was known to be innocent. He, he really was. And... Um, the the head of the treatment staff, uh, Dr. Barbara Schwartz, has said to me on multiple occasions, I, I, I knew he, w- he was innocent. There have only been three people in my entire life that I, I could tell and know definitively they were innocent, and he was one of them. 
The other was Dennis Mayer. Dennis Mayer, another innocent man. All right, my name's Dennis Mayer. I was wrongfully convicted. I spent 19 years, two months, and 29 days in prison. And I first met Bernie sometime in the 80s. I was convicted of um, rape, attempted rape, aggravated rape, and sentenced to 20 to 30 years, second-degree life, and one day to natural life, which is a civil commitment as a sexually dangerous person. For Dennis, civil commitment meant that instead of spending his sentence in a normal prison, he would be sent to a different facility, the same place Bernie had been transferred to after he tried to kill himself. Uh, the Massachusetts Treatment Center for Sexually Dangerous People. And that that's where I met Bernie. They were just two opposite people. You know, Dennis is your man's man, uh, you know, hard, gruff guy, and Bernie is just a sweet flower, <laughs> I like to say. After we first talked, you know, he said that he was innocent. So, you know, it's something that we could both relate to. In prison, you know, it isn't everyone says they're innocent like people say. Sure, some people do who are guilty, but me and B never said we were guilty. You know, and then um, as as years went along, we became friends. For over a decade, that friendship grew. You know, we'd play sports together or we'd sit down and talk. We started doing therapy together. And, and we'd talk about what it's like to be an innocent man in prison. Or how it all happened or how we were being treated. You know, B had it harder than me because he was gay. People may rape him, may take advantage of him. Uh, we'll think they're gay, so it ain't going to matter if they rape them or stuff like that. You know, so that's what, that's what I mean. He had to deal with other stuff. And when Bernie was dealing with the threat of rape, Dennis was there for him. You know, we would be on the block, and if one of us was in a bad mood, the other one could, not in a bad mood, but having a bad day, we could tell. You know, and we'd just go and talk or give him a hug or something like that, you know, just to know that it's all right. Everything will be all right. Dennis and Bernie both kept fighting their cases, trying to get new trials. And then, one day, Dennis got the news. I ended up getting out before B. You know, and, and that was hard because I knew it was going to hurt B because I was leaving him behind. Crystal has a letter from Bernie. It's dated 2003. He talks about what it felt like, his friend getting out without him. Here's Crystal reading what Bernie wrote. One of my closest friends, Dennis, has left. He was cleared on DNA. He served 19 years for crimes he never committed. My soul was so torn with different emotions. 
I was happy for him. And happy that he would be living the dream he and I had talked about so many times before. I can't even imagine his family's happiness. My friend was going to be living our dream, but at the same time, I had this deep down pain knowing he was leaving me behind and I would now have to dream alone with no one to share it with. When we were in treatment, we, we did a thing called a release plan. And that is your plan for when you get out of prison. You know, and I told everyone, I said, listen, this may not happen because I may die in prison as an innocent man. You know, so I said, I'll do the treatment plan, but, you know, I'm not going to write it down. I said, I get out of prison through DNA. I take two months off. I get a job and I meet a woman. I get married. We have children and buy a house. So I get out through DNA. I took two months off. I get a job at Waste Management where I still work. I just went over 15 years. Uh, I met my wife online. We have two children, my son Joshua and my daughter Eliza, who's named after the woman who got me out of prison. You know, and we own a house. So that's the dream we used to talk about. A dream Dennis would get to live. Without Bernie. Bernie writes, I got a chance to say goodbye to him. About ten guys showed up. So I felt a little out of place, as I always do. I don't fit in. I'm not like them. That was another thing that me and Dennis, my friend, had in common. Everyone was sitting around talking like our friend was going to be here tomorrow. It was driving me crazy, but yet I could not find my voice. I finally stood up and asked my friend if I could hug him. I had been fighting back tears for the last 40 minutes and I needed to say goodbye no matter how hard it was going to be. When we hugged, my whole being hurt so bad. I just started crying ever so hard. We both stood in each other's arms in front of everyone else and cried. I guess what shocked me was my friend Dennis cried with the same emotion I did. We held each other shaking like we were in the middle of an earthquake. In our embrace, I told him, I love him, and always felt like we had become so close that I felt he was family to me. Through our overwhelming crying, he told me he loved me too, and felt as if we were family. Then without go it going to my head, without warning, my heart spoke up and told my friend that when I wake up tomorrow, I would be truly alone behind the walls of freedom. I felt so bad for saying that because, as his friend, I wanted him to walk out of here not thinking about the people he left behind. I guess what I will miss most of all is the times we didn't even have to speak to know what each other was feeling and go through. Sorry. 
Sleepless nights allowing the worries and fears to creep inside us, wondering if we were ever going to go home. Hopelessness, wondering why me not fitting in. All that an innocent man goes through, I could understand his pain and he could understand mine. I will take solace through the, that unspoken bond that we share that still lives in the both of us. When I saw him on TV later that day, smiling and waving to his mom and dad, it made my eyes cry once again. But this time I cried with tears of joy. Bernie wasn't sure he'd ever get out of prison. He used to call me. You know, I'd tell him, you better call me. You know, and he'd call and we'd talk. He said, sometimes a day gets so hard for me. Get up. I get so down on myself in my situation. I sometimes tell you that I will never get out of here. And if I do, it'll be too late. When we first started going to court, I never thought I would be here for another birthday, but it's clear I will be. I've been locked up 20 years. I really thought my 40th birthday would have been the year I was celebrating my new life on the outside. On October 6, I started my 21st year incarcerated for crimes I never committed. I never thought I would still be here, never. I have a hard time at this time of year with the holidays, Thanksgiving, my mother's birthday, and Christmas. It is just too much loneliness for my heart to bear. Like you say, you sit around on Thanksgiving and you look all around you and your heart would ache for family and, and you lose your appetite. You didn't eat one. I hope that my freedom will come soon. I look forward to, but also fear the day I'm released. I have to start my life over in my 40s with owning nothing. I try to save money, but being so far behind in life can really be overwhelming. Bernie wanted to be done with prison, but the future was frightening too. And if he ever got out, he was afraid of moving back to Berkshire County, back to Pittsfield, afraid of how the town would react. I want so badly to go home. As much as I want to go home to my family, I will not for fear that someone in the area will still believe I'm guilty and try to hurt my family. I have learned to live with a lot of things, beatings, the hatred towards me, the awful memories of prison, the loneliness, and the nightmares of the court system. However, I cannot live with the thought of putting my family in harm's way. I cherish them too much. This is just one of the many fears that haunt me. I wish my mind could relax so that I could relax. I want one night's sleep without awakening to my fears and nightmares. But one must always stay alert to survive in this world. Prison was already taking its toll on Bernard Barron. He needed to get out. To do that, he needed a way to challenge his conviction. He needed something new. His lawyers started looking into the children, the ones who testified against Bernie. The lawyers wanted to know what happened in the interviews between the children and the police. The prosecutors were supposed to keep tapes of the police interviews. So Bernie's lawyers tried to get them. The videotapes of the children in their interviews were missing. 
the prosecutor's office wouldn't turn over the tapes. They said they couldn't find them. That went on for years, until Berkshire County got a new district attorney. Lo and behold, he found all these videotapes in a, in a stack in the corner of, a, of their file room, in a, mixed up with a bo- box of, full of uh, uh, OUI videos, uh, and, and turned them over. And then we were literally off to the races. At that point in time, we sent them off to uh, Johns Hopkins, where the, um, Maggie Bruck had a bunch of graduate students rip them apart um, line by line. Dr. Maggie Bruck a psychologist who worked at Johns Hopkins at the time. She and her students analyzed the videos, looked at the way the kids were interviewed, and they found something. It, it was. It was a turning point in the case. Dr. Bruck came into court. They had a hearing in front of a judge. She was able to, she's done her own research, I mean, and, and she's shown her, she was able to show, I think, some of her own um, video research, one of which is, uh, is she takes real children that are going to a pediatrician, and she has a real pediatrician take a tongue depressor and do basically two things to the child. Not put the tongue depressor anywhere near their mouth or any orifice, but um, uh, run the tongue depressor down the the bottom of the child's foot um, and, uh, and then send the child home for three days, bring the child back, and have the child videotape with a doll and a tongue depressor and ask the child to do what was done to her with the doll and the tongue depressor. And what you see on the videotape is that doll, that child takes that tongue depressor and sticks that tongue depressor in every orifice, everything you can find, um, and is just playing with the doll. Just playing. Dr. Bruck was able to explain something that had become understood with new research and with a bit of time, removed from the 80s and the daycare panics. It turns out if you don't interview kids carefully, you can get them to say almost anything. So the kids on the tapes were willing to say Bernie did things to them. But they also said things like, um, Joey did it to me, Bobby did it to me. They, 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 were, they were not focused. If Bernie's jury had seen those tapes or had heard from Dr. Brock, they might not have believed the children. That alone might have changed the outcome. But there's more. Back in the 80s, when the prosecutor wanted to charge Bernie with rape, he needed approval from a grand jury. A grand jury reviews some of the evidence before a trial. If they thought the prosecution had enough evidence, the grand jury would allow the case to go to trial. But if not, Bernie wouldn't be prosecuted for rape. So the prosecutor showed the grand jury the interview tapes. Sort of. Now, what happened in terms of B getting indicted was not that they actually showed those videotapes to the grand jury. They did not. Daniel Ford edited those videotapes. Once Bernie's lawyers saw the tapes in 2004, they realized what Ford had done. Cut out all of the bad parts. Whenever the children said that Bernie never molested them, that no one ever molested them. Whenever the police had to feed the children the right answers. He deleted those parts. 
and edited them down to just the pit bits that were incriminating and nothing else and showed them to the grand jury. And that's how he got his indictment. Bernie's lawyers went back to court. They argued that justice hadn't been done. And in 2006, a judge agreed. Bernie's conviction was overturned. The court had decided that Bernie's original trial hadn't been fair. But now the prosecutors had a chance to decide whether they were going to try him again. Bernie was free to leave for now, but he had to wear a GPS bracelet, a band around his ankle that lets the government know where he is. Always. So we, we were successful in flipping the case, but we, um, the, the DA's office could still go forward. And so he was essentially on bail. And, um, and his condition was that he'd be on a GPS and he'd um, have a curfew in my house at 10 p.m. every night. His lawyer's house. Bernie didn't have anywhere else to go. And when we got B out, um, he didn't want to go back to the Berkshires. He was afraid of the people that are there. He literally refused to go back there. And what we did, and I asked my wife um, if she would allow him to come live in our house. And that first night, we threw the biggest um, party that, that we could possibly um, make happen at, uh, at Faneuil Hall in um, one of these fish restaurants. And over the top, we had champagne. We, had, we just were ordering everything, and we were having the best time. And someone mentioned either to me or to him that it was about 9.30, and we had to get him back up to my house. And we were at a restaurant, and my car was I don't know, 15 minutes away, and um, we ran. We ran like crazy. We jumped on the pike and got off and got into my house at 10.01 to the phone ringing, um, it being the GPS people, and they asked where he was, and he said, I'm right here. <laughs> and he said he didn't sleep that whole night because he was so just wired from being free. He said he didn't sleep that whole night either. He just couldn't, like said, it wasn't real to him. In 2009, the prosecutors dropped the case. Now, Bernie was really free. He had a sparkling personality. Like, one thing that I always remember meeting other exonerees and stuff, a lot of people were carried a lot of bitterness around, which, who blames these people for that? I mean, you spend so many years in prison, and, and in a certain way, it did affect them, you know? But I think one thing Bernie always tried hard to do was, you know, he always stayed positive. He always stayed as happy-go-lucky, carefree, you know, self. He was able to be goodness and light. And despite all of that, he was able to not just project it, but it was him. It was his inner inner being was, was and I know he had dark moments and, and, and but he was a sparkle that was, it was genuine and it was to everyone. It was not just to the people he knew well. Um, he could warm a stranger up better than, than anyone. Um, 
He was very childlike, and I think that's why, you know, when you went and did something with him, it was, you know, it could just be go to the grocery store for, you know, the first time, and he would just be so childlike about it. Like, the holidays were the best time to go to the stores with him because he wanted to touch everything and make everything work, and it was because all the years he missed, you know, so much, and coming out, it, you know, he just enjoyed the little things, and it would be, for you, you would almost have to take a step back and be like, wow, I took you know, took that for granted, but now seeing it through his eyes, it was almost just like, well, you were seeing it for the first time, and you know, you just always wanted to be with him. Like, you just wanted to be around him. Now, you did not want to go shopping with me. He was worse than an old lady. He would stop and read every package, look at everything, and walk it about two miles an hour, and stop and look, and I says, oh my God, I'm going to die here. And, um, but I would go do it because I wanted to hang out with B. He moved out of John's house. His friend Dennis gave him a place to stay for a while. He got a job landscaping. You know, he did gardens all over Boston. He did people's properties. He made the garden in, in the front of my house. He totally redid our flower beds in the front. And I get to see his yellow roses um, every year. Yeah. He made everything, just everything he touched when he was able to was just better than he left it. So it does make us feel good. You know, there's beauty all over Boston because of him. Mm -hmm. To know him was to love him. Bernie passed away in September 2014. Five years after the case against him, was finally dropped. He died of a heart attack. Crystal was with him in the end. He was 49. He didn't make it to 50, unfortunately. It's probably hard for people to understand that. It's hard to think about now that he's gone. You know, we used to laugh about a lot of things after he was out of prison. John knows we used to all do it together. Just like ways, I guess, help Bertie get through prison life. You know, the stories he used to tell about prison, you almost would think like he was an Avenger in there. Kicking ass and taking names. Uh, and I wrote it to him a lot, which I'm glad I always told him, but, you know, he's the most courageous person I know to survive what he survived and still not have a black heart from it all. I mean, to me, I have blackness in my heart because of things that happened to him. And yet he didn't. So even though he's not here to lecture me, anymore or tell me what I'm doing right and wrong I still feel like he is because he was you know so honest and loving I mean there wasn't anything I couldn't tell him that's one of the things I miss the most the things that I miss are the things that I won't get to experience with him that I just started to get to experience with him and he was he was the the best side of me. I mean, he, he, he I, I'm, I'm much more 
negative and bleak and, and angry and and uh, aggressive. And he he softens you. He's he I I I my my regret is that I'm not going to be able to spend the rest of my life with him. I I actually thought that we would be friends for the rest of our lives. He died on my birthday. You know, my sister called me and said, um, B died. So the first thing I did, I think, I think the first thing I did was I called Crystal to see how she was. You know, and then I had to deal, you know, with my friend's dead. You know, he died on my birthday. I think he just wanted to make sure I didn't forget about him, which could never which could never happen. He was my friend. You know, he still is my friend. He may be dead, but he's still my friend. There are a lot of people out here, I think, that take their lives for granted and their freedom. I think he would just want people to know that he was a loving, caring person and that prison didn't rob him of his heart and soul. That's probably what I think he would most want people to know about him. Other than that, he was a good dresser and good looking. <laughs> I often think what he could have done with his life. I think the truth of it is together we were strong. I don't feel it anymore. I feel the deep sadness that I can't even explain. And I'm angry. I'm so angry of what they took from him. And when he got out of prison, I can't even tell you the joy. We both, it was our dream. Our dream came true. And when Crystal got married and I danced with Bernie, I actually felt, even though we were crying, I felt like we were dancing in the clouds. And I felt this most wonderful feeling. Bernie was like my pizza heaven on earth. And I was with him, it was like, it was just, I felt light and I felt good. Everything gone, I don't feel, and I never felt, and I don't think I ever will again. And I'm angry for what they did to him. And I'll never get over that anger. I tried to do it. But I think, and now that he, I maybe could have got over some of that anger, but he didn't die. And the weirdest thing was, I didn't even get to say goodbye to him. Bernie was 49 years old when he passed away. He spent 21 of those years in prison. If the people weren't homophobic, it would have never happened in the first place. And, you know, to go in a small-minded town like that, someone just capitalized on it. True justice will never be done because the people who did this to him are never going to even see one, one day behind bars. Never mind 21 years. Remember the DA who edited the tapes, attorney Daniel Ford? The one who called Bernie a chocoholic in a candy store. And the DA now got to be a 
superior judge and earning conviction helped him get that position. He became a judge in Hampton, Massachusetts. When people are accused of serious crimes, it's his job to make sure they get a fair trial. This just shows his heart. He's apologizing. I'm very sorry about this letter's contents. I just needed so badly to get some things out. I wish I had something happier to talk about. Thanks for listening. There were many other people who were part of Bernie's story who we didn't have space to cover in this episode. You can learn more about Bernie and everyone who supported him along the way at massexoneration.com. That's our last episode for this season. If you think these stories are important, please tell your friends about the podcast. Stay tuned for announcements about bonus content and our plans for what's next. There are innocent people still in prison right now. And when you're not the one on the jury, it's sometimes hard to know what you can do to help. You can start by making a donation to an organization like the New England Innocence Project, or whichever innocence program serves your community, so that they can keep fighting against wrongful convictions. Mass Exoneration is produced in collaboration with the New England Innocence Project, fighting to free people in Massachusetts, Rhode Island, New Hampshire, Maine, Connecticut, and Vermont. To help them provide lawyers to people like Bernie, visit newenglandinnocence.org. Mass Exoneration is recorded at the PRX Podcast Garage in Alston, Massachusetts. Their community recording studio provides equipment and training to storytellers, producers, and editors. Thanks to Alex and Ian for all of their support. You can learn more about what they do at podcastgarage.org. Lisa Cavanaugh is our executive director. Jeff Harris composed our theme. Ken Richardson takes our photographs. Betsy Del Campo created our logo. Special thanks to Megan Sheridan, Tim Clark, Skylar Dom, Alex Fernandez, and Erica Johnson for their help with this episode. Our podcast is edited and produced by Nicole Baker and me, Brian Pilchuk. My name is Dennis Mayer, and this is Mass Exoneration.